0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University.
1: Hello, I'm Kelly Brownell, the Director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome our special guest for this podcast, Mark Rowling, who's an Associate Professor of Human Resource Management in the School of Labor and Industrial Relations at Michigan State University, and a leading expert on the psychological and legal aspects of weight discrimination in the workplace. He received received his Ph.D. in human resource management from Michigan State University and his law degree from the University of Michigan, and Mark has, has published widely and done pioneering work on the issue of weight discrimination, more work on this really than anybody anywhere, and it has had a big impact on, on the field. And I'm also happy that my colleague Rebecca Poole is joining us today, Dr. Poole, Um, has a Ph.D. in clinical psychology and is the director of the Weight Stigma Initiatives at the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity, and herself has done a great deal of work. So Rebecca and Mark, welcome.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you.
1: So Mark, let me start with the following question. Um, how, How bad is the weight discrimination problem? And then I'd like to come back and ask you whether you think government should be involved in doing something about it.
0: I think both in a a relative sense compared to other forms of discrimination and an absolute sense, uh, the problem's bad, real bad. It is, there is, when researchers go in and conduct studies in a whole variety of settings, simulated and in field settings, they they find consistent evidence of weight discrimination, discrimination against applicants or employees in virtually every stage of the employment process beginning from the, what kind of vocational counseling advice that uh, young people receive to the uh, decisions made in the hiring process, what kind of jobs people get, discipline, what training people receive, and discharge. So it's, it, the magnitude of it is it was really it's surprising as you get into it. Well, let's talk
1: about two general classes of studies that are illustrative of this phenomenon that you've been writing about in such a nice way. Um, one would be experimental studies where you kind of manipulate things like what goes on to a resume. Could you give us a kind of a prototype of what a study like that might be and what kind of findings it might produce? Yeah,
0: uh, and laboratory studies will involve setting up some form of simulated employment decision. So it'll be, uh, they'll look at how what's affecting decisions to hire somebody or how much compensation to give them. And so they will, and the subjects or participants uh, are sometimes actual people from organ- with organizational experience and sometimes people with, who are college students. And research suggests that the findings really don't vary depending on which group is involved. But the study itself then will carefully control um, all, all other factors that may be influencing the, the decision, uh, the simulated employment decision, whether to hire somebody and then manipulate the weight of the applicant being viewed, either by showing videos of a normal weight person and a very large or obese person, or showing photographs of the two people. So they, by controlling for everything else and then manipulating weight and seeing how that affects people's decision, they're able to isolate whether the decision is being uh, influenced significantly by the person's size.
1: Okay, and then at the other end of the continuum are studies that have been done on wages of yes. people depending on whether they're overweight or not. What yeah. do those find?
0: Those come from field settings or going out into the workplaces, and uh, they're the whole range of them, but the best ones in quite a few, are large, uh, either nationally representative samples or representative of a state, and they look at, uh, they go with the population of people who've been out there working and look at the relationship between the body mass or the weight of the person as assessed by body mass or some other measure of uh, excess weight, and the relationship between that and how much they are earning. Trying to control for as many other explanations that are possible. So controlling for health conditions and controlling for education. And then they examine, do people, for example, who are at very high levels of obesity earn less?
1: And what do those studies show? How Uh, the because people talk use the term wage penalty to describe yeah. the, well, the consequences of some discriminatory factor like weight. How big is the penalty? Uh,
2: Certainly in, in the work that I, I've come across, I've seen a wage penalty for obese females as much as 6% um, lower compared to thinner women for the same work performed. And I think among men, it's around 3% less.
1: All right. So that's a very significant effect. Oh, very. yeah. Okay. So let me, um, and I know Rebecca will have some questions too. But let me ask you a sort of philosophical question. Then it sounds like the research on this is is sound, solid, and consistent. That there is such a thing as weight discrimination in employment settings, and, and you and you've done some review of some reviews yeah. of those, and it's consistent across types of studies and types of jobs and things like that. Mark, given that the science on this is so robust, as your own reviews have shown, and there's a pretty clear relationship between weight and employment discrimination, what are the arguments for and against government getting involved in this, and government playing a role in trying to correct the discrimination?
0: I definitely think there's a role for government. Before we talk about that, role, I would like to mention, there's also a definite role for employers. So, but uh, I don't see... Uh, the, the, and both are very consistent. So when you look at the, the uh, government and why they might, why they should get involved, the most fundamental role is the uh, reason it has to do with the uh, principle of uh, equal opportunity principle, and that is that we have reflected in other areas of our regulation. We have we have reflect the value that people employment decisions be made based on job relevant criteria. That are consistently applied. So in this area, uh, asking employ making employers uh, consider weight only under those circumstances when it's job relevant uh, is consistent with the equal opportunity principle, and as a human resource management professional, would promote more effective human resource management practices. So this is one of those areas where government regulation would not only address a social justice issue. It will promote the effective human resource management of uh, in, in organizations.
1: Okay, that's very useful as background. Okay.
2: Could you talk a little bit about what legal options are available for obese employees who feel like they've been discriminated against?
0: Uh, Currently, it really depends on where you're at. A big part of it is what jurisdiction you're in. But if we start out for the vast majority of employees in the United States, there's very little protection available. One, one possibility is under the Americans with Disability Act or state disability laws, there are circumstances where if, you, uh, if you, uh, an individual's obesity is associated with very serious physical limitations but not so serious that they still aren't able to perform the job, uh, they may have some protection based of, as a protected disability under one of the, the federal or state law. Uh, and there are very few employees who feel they've been discriminated based on weight have found protection under that category. It's a very narrow category. So under the fair employment laws, if, if people are treated differently because of their weight, and it's associated with a protected characteristic, like the fact that they are a woman, then they may have protection uh, based on sex discrimination. In other words, uh, if you apply different weight standards to men and women, or if you apply different weight standards to African-Americans and whites, uh, it wouldn't, it's not illegal weight discrimination, it becomes a form of illegal sex discrimination or race discrimination. and. There's indeed a number of cases like that, and when employers have those standards, uh, they've been held accountable for that. And so the most likely scenario that would be involved is where research suggests, as you know, they, uh, that women may be evaluated more harshly or appears are evaluated more harshly. And there's a lot of anecdotal evidence where employers are fairly explicit about hiring slender, then they'll often tie slender and attractive women together, and but in hiring men, they don't apply the same standard. Uh, In that case, that would be, if demonstrated, that would be a form of sex discrimination, and it's linked to weight.
2: And so do you think that existing laws are adequate?
0: Um, If, oh, come on, in perhaps one state, in the state of Michigan, there's only one state that actually makes weight a protected characteristic. Uh, uh, So outside of the state of Michigan, the, it, I would say, existing laws are not adequate to address the seriousness of the problem and that they could be made adequate enough or they could be improved to both address the issue and still be consistent with effective human resource practices, best practices.
1: Well, Michigan law has been in effect for a number of years. As yes, I understand. since
0: 1979.
1: What has been the impact of that?
0: Well... I can give you some information, but part of it is we have a large project going on to, to look in more detail. What's been the impact on employment outcomes? Has it improved the employment rate of uh, people of size, very large people, and is it, has it reduced or eliminated wage penalties for uh, overweight people that show up in other settings? So uh, generally I can say one one of the outcomes that resulted is the fear that the floodgates would be opened and that employers would be overwhelmed with litigation has not been realized. Um, so there, there is relatively little litigation. So, uh,
1: like how how little? Give us some numbers. All right. So,
0: in, the if looking at the uh, available data on number of uh, civil rights. Uh, Complaints filed, or complaints filed with the Department of Civil Rights for the last year available, publicly available, was 2003. There were a total of five uh, weight-related employment complaints filed, and and that was less than 0.05, one percent. So it's very few claims. Now, in terms of reported legal cases, which really only represent the tip of the iceberg. But in a given year in Michigan, depending upon whether it's a race case or a gender, there'll be anywhere from dozens to sometimes a hundred cases on a topic. Um, There is about one case a year dealing with uh, weight-related employment discrimination. So there have not been a lot of, one of the questions then, a lot of cases litigated. So one of the questions then is why is that happening and if a law is going to be really effective, what else might be done? Aside from putting a law on the books, because it's pretty, uh, we all pretty well accept you can put a law on the books, but if people aren't aware of it and then there aren't mechanisms for enforcing it that are effectively carried out, both on the part of the person who feels they've been discriminated against, and the agencies and courts uh, overseeing the, the remedies, then you know having the law itself won't change a lot of behavior.
1: Right. So I guess you could, you could have this wishful thinking and say that the fact that there are a small number of cases in Michigan is a consequence of the law working and there's not much weight discrimination going on. But, of course, that's pretty unlikely. And what's more likely is what you said, that people don't know about it it's not being effectively applied and people aren't aware that they could use this law to protect themselves against discriminatory practices.
0: Yeah. We really that those are all alternative explanations. We really don't know. The decision whether to file a claim or pursue litigation or something else is influenced by such a variety of things. So we know it I mean the, the best available evidence right now is that only about two-thirds of the people are in Michigan adults are aware that there is a law. And it also suggests that of people who, uh, who feel like they've experienced weight discrimination, um, they are reluctant to go forward and try to remedy it in a public form, you know, external beyond their employment.
1: Okay, so the, I guess one important point you're making is that just the passing of the law becomes step number one if a state wants to take action and do this, that there has to be follow-through processes set up where people can initiate action um, and a, a regulatory government system that that helps people through that.
0: That's exactly right. And I think people, when you go back and look at other forms of fair employment legislation that have been effective, they all were, uh, accompanying them were these, the, the follow-up, the public publicity campaigns, advocacy groups, training of the state agencies, uh, making sure that, you know, putting the law in the books is a good way to look at it. That's step one. And if that's where it ends, it's pr- have a minimal effect at a best, is every reason to believe. Okay.
2: You mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago when you were talking about weight discrimination that it's sometimes linked to sex discrimination. Um, and I'm wondering what you found in your own work with respect to gender differences in weight discrimination in the workplace.
0: Well, That's an uh, interesting question. It really it depends on what kind of study you look at. And so we've really systematically looked at this recently, in field settings, you get a, a, a looking at field settings involving weight discrimination in employment, you get a, uh, a fairly consistent evidence that women are evaluated more harshly than men. The, for example, the penalty for a, a woman being obese, the wage penalty, is greater than the penalty for men, and it starts kicking in at a, a lower level of being, having excess weight. And certainly beyond the employment literature, in the broader literature about weight discrimination in society in general, there seems to be a con- pretty consistent finding that uh, women are evaluated more harshly. Uh, but recently, so looking, returning back to the employment setting and focusing on just laboratory studies Involving uh, weight discrimination and employment simulated employment decisions, uh, a, a recent meta-analysis we conducted of, uh, involving uh, 32 studies, although not all of those involved, looked at the gender issue. We uh, failed to find a significant effect for the the weight of the target being evaluated. In other words, the weight effect, if the negative effect of being overweight, was consistent for both men and women. So that is a li- that. Uh, you're getting a bit of a different pattern of findings between field settings and laboratory settings.
2: Some of the um, research on weight stigma in children has found that uh, the difference with boys and girls and, and being vulnerable to weight bias is less an issue of frequency and, and more an issue of the form or type of, of weight bias or victimization. Do you think that could be happening with men and women in, in the workplace as well?
0: Yeah, that's so, yeah, that's a, an interesting insight to bring from that literature over to the employment literature, because it does, that could be what's happening. There is reason to believe, and now the recent survey evidence, but uh, uh, that uh, women experience different forms of weight uh, related discrimination. In particular, they're more, much more likely to report experiencing harassing behaviors related to their weight. In contrast, men were more likely to re- to ex- report they experience. Uh, they were discriminated in a specific employment decision about whether or not they were hired or whether or not they received a promotion. So it could be that that the harassing behavior, both because of its, uh, you know, if it's harassing by nature is more of a continuous, a continuity to it, maybe going on longer, and it also might be the inner, I'm thinking aloud here because of the idea you brought up, the, the interpersonal nature of it also, may, it may have the consequences in those kind of settings uh, and the consequences of harassing behaviors are greater, and they're visited more on women. Those, and that would explain also the difference between field settings and weight, and laboratory studies, because in laboratory studies, they have not been able to, or they have not attempted to uh, manipulate harassing behaviors and its effect. It's a difficult, it'd be a very difficult thing to do there. They focus on the relationship of weight and how it influences specific employment decisions.
1: You know, this discussion reminds me that it's easy to talk about the issue of weight bias in abstract scientific terms, um, you know, how many people are affected or what the wage penalty might be, et cetera, but when you think about the harassing comments that you just brought up, you can get a sense of the human cost of this and what it must feel like to employ, uh, for an employee, a a female, to use the, the case that you talked about, being harassed and being the victim of demeaning comments and, you know, the harassing comments and shaming comments and things like that, and how difficult it would be to to enjoy a work environment or to work effectively or to even have your psychological well-being protected in a work environment when you're the victim of that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and that, that's an excellent point, and it really reminds me of, on those occasions where I interview people who have experienced uh, weight discrimination, and it. When they describe the interpersonal things that happen and the way they feel and how it makes them think about the next time they're going into the similar setting, you just can't help but I mean feeling an empathy for what's going on and kind you know the hard data is one thing and to see and some and to try to and imagining those experiences makes it a very real problem. And, yeah, it's
1: heartbreaking to hear those yeah. kind of stories. Uh, one fascinating insight that that you've had on this issue has to do with the cost of of obesity um, versus the cost to employers of discriminating against obesity. and uh, could you talk about that a little bit because it's really interesting how you look at it that you know obesity employers see well, it's going to cost us a certain amount of money per year in health care costs for every obese employee. but you say that there's another way of looking at this that employers often don't consider
0: right it 's another example in an area where it 's just natural decision makers who are confronting lots of information. they focus on some immediate short term information that 's put in front of them and don 't think through the other countervailing considerations and the less obvious cost associated with the decision so the pres- in this setting the, um, there 's all sorts of groups who are uh, who are bringing up information and providing about uh, the, the average cost of hiring an obese or maintaining an obese employee on your work role. And they relate it to, and the range of cost is, is uh, there's a significant range but it, the lower end is $329 but I've heard it up into six dollars $700. And I'm really not so worried about the range because all, of the ra- all the numbers I've heard become insignificant when you look at the broader picture and what the cost can be for most jobs if you bypass somebody who is more qualified. In other words, the cost of hiring someone somewhat better for most jobs other than most entry level quickly becomes into the thousands of dollars per year. Uh, so the trade-off, uh, become, in most instances, becomes a very bad one.
1: So the research that comes out that says obese people miss more days of work, and have higher health care costs and things like that generates a number of what it would cost employees per year but that number is far lower than the sacrifice employees are making by narrowing their applicant pool and and given that the the number of people in the population is significant two-thirds of adults now that represents considerable narrowing of the pool if you're discriminating against people who are overweight um, in hopes of saving some money.
0: Yes. Sounds like a very
1: short-sighted
0: and it, thing for and it may vary from settings, but very, there are going to be very few settings where you would say, I'm going to, it's it's worth $350 or $500 a year to take somebody who's a little bit less qualified, that the, the evidence just doesn't bear out that that's the case. And the other big issue is that if health care costs are a concern, that's not saying health care costs aren't relevant. It's it's there are other, there's costs of bypassing qualified people that are greater and there are other things employers can and should be doing to address the health care cost uh, issue. Uh, and accepting, adopting a, a cutoff, a weight cutoff, is, is the quick and easy way to do it. And like many quick and easy ways, it's, it's other than those uh, characteristics to recommend it. It, it doesn't have a, There's not a lot of other things to recommend it. There are much more thoughtful ways of looking at it.
1: So to use a real-world example of how this might play out, the state of Alabama recently announced that for state employees who are overweight, there were going to be additional charges assessed them for their health insurance. And so overweight people are going to pay more in Alabama, state employees, than non overweight people are for the same care. Now if that results in overweight people not wanting to be state employees, and the state's applicant pool shrinks as a consequence of that. The money, from what you're saying, the money that they save in the health care cost could be outweighed by having people who are less skilled and narrowing narrowing the, the job qualifications of the people they have to select from, and it could actually be counterproductive in terms of the well-being of the state.
0: Yes, that's what I'm saying, and then in the specific case, you have to look very more carefully at it. What are the categories of job and the rest, but there is, you know, it's very easy to look at the information on the value of having a better employee and how much it's worth to start realizing that the cost of leaving quality people out due to a health care cost is a bad bargain.
2: If women and men are, are reporting weight discrimination in the workplace, yeah. how are they typically taking action or are they taking action? And, and do women and men differ at all with, with respect to how they react when they've experienced weight discrimination?
0: Uh-huh. Well, overall, the, the people are taking, uh, based on some preliminary survey results, people are taking, uh, uh, about, about 40% of the people were taking some action, but it was action internal to the organization. Uh, so either consulting a union representative or um, filing some kind of complaint or grievance or bringing it to someone's attention internally. When, then when you start looking at whether they tried to go outside the organization and do anything more publicly or externally, um, you, it, it suddenly drops down to only 2% of the of the folks actually consult an attorney or 2.5% and even less than that actually ever pursue any kind of litigation. So there is uh, there's evidence that people are taking some action, but the publicness or externalness of it, it, se- it seems to be a big drop off. There is a big drop off afterwards. And so in terms of uh, gender differences, uh, the one that has stuck out most notice- noticeably is the fact that women were much more likely to respond to uh, the, per- the perception that they were being discriminated based on weight by at least taking some action although in most cases it would have been something internal to the organization, compared to men. In men, it was, in women, it was 82% of the women and only about 11% of the men.
2: And I think, you know, one of the complexities with studying weight bias is there's layers of gender and race and age and all these other forms of potential bias which can come into play. And I was wondering if if in any of your work you've found information about um, ethnic minorities and their vulnerability to weight discrimination in the workplace.
0: The meta-analysis study we looked at, uh, we conducted, looked at that issue, and whether uh, uh, targets who were overweight were evaluated more negatively if they were depending on whether they were white or African American. And the result, there was a significant effect that overweight white targets were evaluated more negatively than uh, African American targets. So, and there is some evidence if you look at the field study, now that was a relatively, there was a limited group, just a few studies that actually were included, but it was uh, using uh, meta-analog techniques, it was a significant, st- statistically significant difference. And if you look at the size of the effects difference, based on a qualitative review, you'd say that's what we expected. And then if you look at the field settings, there is a, there appears to be some evidence of that uh, uh, African American uh, women are not as evaluated as negatively based on weight uh, compared to white women. And my belief is that there's less evidence of that, of race differences among men.
1: Let me ask a question. Uh, This is sort of a hypothetical one where you'll just have to draw an intuition more than anything else, but I'm curious about your opinion here. If we think about, um, this will be a what will it take question. So if what we're interested in is, is changing social norms, employee practices, and things like that so that overweight people get treated as other people do, given their qualifications and their abilities to work and things like that. What will it take to get us to that point? Um, Do you think it's uh, the, the argument that, a social justice argument, that it's just not fair, the equal opportunity argument that most people will consider a valid one? Is it a strictly financial one that it's not in your best interest as an employer to discriminate against overweight people? What do you think will it will take to ultimately get some change going on?
0: I know at the if you want to bring out change at the organizational level, it's going to be the financial argument in uh, or not or not just it all ends up being tied to finance, but effective human resource management or, and how the importance of not wasting that human resource. By making decisions that are influenced by bias, whether it's any race bias or, in this case, weight bias, that's the most effective argument with um, uh, with employers themselves mm-hmm. uh, to get a societal change and to get legislation passed. And other, I th- you're gonna that's going to be relevant again. But uh, uh, but I still, and this may just be my projection, believe that there are significant uh, uh, group of people. I like to believe it's a majority of the people that believe in the equal opportunity principle, and social, which is a social justice principle. And if it's framed more that way and and explained and and, and that and social justice becomes an easier thing for many people to endorse when they see it's also good for the bottom line. So I really think there's gonna there's an interaction of the two. We you know you can do a good thing, and by the way, it's also good for for the way we run our business. So
1: that dual approach might really get more people on the team, and get more people to buy this sort of philosophy. Um, It's a very interesting point of view you have on that, that there are financial reasons not to discriminate, but of course there are social justice issues as well. Uh, Rebecca, any parting questions from you?
2: Just wondering, when you think of all the work that you've done in this area, what, what gaps are in the field, or what studies really would be the most important ones to be doing next, do you think?
0: More research on what we can do to Intervene to either reduce the bias or uh, or reduce the discrimination. I mean, I mean, either reduce the bias attitude or discrimination. More and more, I I'm not ready to give up on the idea that there are more training related and other kind of interventions that may be effective in reducing biased attitudes. But as a practical matter, I. Th- I'm also moving more to the idea that we have to focus on controlling and eliminating discriminating behaviors and while we're doing the other. And in the end, when we, when we start shaping behavior that way, it'll get start getting easier to change uh, uh, attitudes. But right now, I, I'm of the view that changing discriminatory behaviors in the workplace is going to be easier than changing their attitudes.
1: Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. This was very informative, and you're dealing with an incredibly important issue. So uh, thank you for your hard work on, on uh, behalf of other people concerned with this topic.
0: Well, I, I, let me, it's my pleasure to be here. It's both a pleasure and given the Rudd Institute's role in a, uh, not just the, the discrimination aspect of weight, but just obesity and how do we deal with the issue. It's, uh, it's a pleasure and an honor. I feel honored to be excellent.
1: Thank you. So I'd like to thank my colleague, Rebecca Poole, Director of Weight Stigma Initiatives at the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University, and our special guest, Mark Rowling, on the faculty of the School of Labor and Industrial Relations at Michigan State University. Uh, This podcast is part of a series produced by the Rudd Center, and I um, invite you to go to the Rudd Center website, which is www.yaleruddcenter.org and to see a list of the other podcasts, as well as resources that the Rudd Center offers, such as a free email newsletter that one can receive, uh, news updates regularly, and a number of other resources on a number of topics. Thank you, and until the next time.